At the age of 17, I developed bipolar disorder, a very severe form. It nearly uh, cost me my life and nearly destroyed my family. My parents were in the middle of getting divorced at the time. Uh, it was a tumultuous time for my life as a teen. And I believed uh, that I was the only one under that cloud. I don't want to have this disease. I don't want to be flawed. Bipolar disorder, that's not me. I was a wrestling champion in the WCL League in, in, in California. There's no way. My football team went to state, this is garbage. And I, I was in so much denial. And that denial ruled the day until I crashed hard. And it was September 24th when, when it all came to a head. I sat at my desk and I penned that note. Mom, dad, brother, sister, girlfriend, best friend. Love you, but I gotta go. I was gonna go to the Golden Gate and I was gonna disappear. I thought I was my family's burden. I wish I asked them. I just wanted the pain to stop. That's the common denominator of people we lose to suicide. They just want the pain to stop. What they don't realize is that their thoughts don't have to become their actions. Their thoughts don't have to take over. You know, I found myself in my father's room that morning. I startled him awake. He looked at me, said, Kev, what's wrong? Like with parental instinct. I said, uh, nothing, Dad. I just want to tell you that I love you. It's for the very last time. And you know, he goes, I love you too, Kev, but it's six in the morning and I don't gotta be working until nine, go back to bed. I walked around to the other side of the bed, I sat on the carpeted floor and I rocked myself back and forth in tears, begging myself to tell the one man who loves me the most in the world the truth, but the voice in my head said, be quiet, Kevin, you have to die. And that's what took me to the Golden Gate that morning. I took a bus there and on that bus, all I wanted to do was scream and beg for help and live but the voice became so loud. I sat on that bus in the back row, middle seat. I'm crying my eyes out like a baby, mucus dripping from my nose, people staring at me now. Then I'm yelling aloud at the voices in my head. I desperately wanted someone to say, are you okay? I would have told them everything. I sat there crying. Bus driver turned, he stood, he looked at me and he said, kid, come on, get off the bus, I gotta go. I walked across the walkway of the Golden Gate Bridge for 40 minutes, nobody cares. And the voice in my head said, jump now, and I did. At the millisecond that my hands left that rail, instant regret for my actions and the absolute recognition that I just made the greatest mistake of my life. You know, falling head first, right in my body accidentally, landed in a position that wouldn't kill me. On the way down, I said to myself, what have I just done? I don't want to die. God, please save me. And I hit the water. I went down 70 feet beneath the water's surface, but I opened my eyes. My legs, I couldn't move. I had shattered my T12, L1, and L2 lower vertebrae into shards like glass. I had missed severing my spinal cord by uh, two millimeters. I swam to the surface only using my arms. When I came to the surface, bobbing up and down in water, swallowing salt water, kept going down, couldn't stay afloat. A woman driving by in a red car saw me go over and she called her friend in the Coast Guard. The reason the Coast Guard got to my body within less than the time I was set in hypothermia and drowned was because of that woman making that phone call. The Coast Guard arrived. 
They fished me out of the water. They put me in a flatboard. They put a neck brace around my neck and they started asking me a bunch of questions. Guy looks at me, he leans in and he says, kid, do you know how many people we pull out of this water that are already gone? And I said, no, and I don't wanna know. And he said, well, I'm gonna tell you, this unit has pulled 57 dead bodies out of this water and one live one. I looked up at my dad and I said, dad, I'm sorry. And he looked down at me and with great conviction, he said, no, Kevin, I'm sorry. And waterfalls flew from his eyes. He put his hand on my forehead and he said words I've never forgotten. Kevin, you are going to be okay, I promise. And that got me through the night. Now I had this opportunity to recover. And a lot of people think that I went from this incident and was like, oh, I'm so much better now. You know, oh great, it's all gone. No, this was just the beginning. You know, as a, a pastor, I, I get the immense honor of being invited into families' lives, often at some of the most difficult places of their journey. I, I've been called into I don't know how many various situations, but there's nothing quite like a suicide. And, and I share this story with you for a couple of reasons. First and foremost, I share it because I want you to realize that we as a leadership recognize that there is the reality of a thing called mental illness. So we're on a journey right now called winning the war for mental health, and we're learning principles from God's word on how we can take on the mind of Christ, how we can walk in the peace and the joy that God gives to us. But there are times when what someone faces is beyond the norm of humanity. There is for some the reality of what you would call an illness where the chemicals in our brains aren't working right. And it's interesting, we tend to approach the thought of mental illness differently than we do for physical illness. People feel an unnecessary sense of shame and guilt over being in that place when it really has to do sometimes with physical things. And people ask all the time, do we pray for healing for that? Absolutely. Have we seen God heal mental illness? Absolutely. But we've also seen times where he hasn't, just like with other diseases, just like with cancer and deafness. Sometimes God heals, sometimes he doesn't. We can talk about the reasons at a different time. I know God's still at work, but when he chooses not to heal, then God in his grace has given humanity at this season some tools to help us when illness exists. So I want you to hear, if you are someone that is on a medication for something to do with the mind, here's what I'm afraid is going to happen. If you enact the principles that we're talking about, you're going to be getting better. And the natural thing is to think, I, I'll just get off my medication. And that might be something you can do, but I encourage you, do not do it outside the counsel of your physician. You need to do it in a certain way, and you need to do it under the authority that God has given to you. And if you think medication might help you, again, you go to your phys physician. But I want you to know something. Medication will not resolve your issues. A pill will not take care of it. What medication will do is get your brain working in a normal way so that we can begin to enact the principles that we hear in God's Word, that we can actually fight by the principles of God's Word and such. But I also share the story because I wanted you to hear reality. Did you hear what Kevin said, that as soon as he jumped, as soon as he took that step into the point of the proverbial no return, 
he realized something. I don't want to die. I want to live. It's almost as if something had blinded his eyes. And the moment that nothing would change, the blinders were lifted. You know, the scripture says that there is a God of this age and that God has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Now, catch this. To be blind is to not be able to see or not be able to see clearly. But in the case of the text right here, it's not that blinding in the physical sense that he has, got, he has blinded the minds, meaning we can't think clearly, we can't think rightly. And to show you just how the hideous the enemy is, the God of this age, the enemy of mankind that we talked about in day one, Satan, the one who currently has a realm of authority here on this earth, how hideous he is, as soon as Kevin jumped, he lifted the blinding. And Kevin knew, I don't want to die. And the enemy, I got you. I got you. See, the story illustrates the truth we have got to grab hold on. North Campus, South Campus, online family, we have got to get this, that every human being has lenses through which we interpreted that which we experienced. We all have thoughts and we have ideas through which we interpret the things that come our ways. And listen to me, those lenses are not accurate. They are not clear. I can remember in graduate school in college, so it was a long time ago, I was taking a required class called Introduction to the Old Testament. Sounds exciting, doesn't it? And, and so in this class, you had two grades. You had a paper, you had a final. You bomb one of those, you're taking the class again if you want to graduate. The way we did the papers was um, you had to give your paper to the professor, then the next week you presented it. And then that gave the professor a week to look at your paper to make sure the presentation was going to be great. He could supplement the information, et cetera, et cetera. Well, mine was the second week of presentations. The first week that I showed up, we, the guy presented a paper. And then the professor stood up and said, I really appreciate this guy, but this paper is not worth discussing. And he took it, and the guy, like, left because he had just failed the class. He, he was done. I had just handed in my paper. And I'm going, oh my goodness, what am I going to do? Anyway, so we go through the next week. I'm in fear and trepidation. I go and I present my paper. And it seems like the presentation went well. The class interaction went well. The professor seemed to like everything I did. And then after the class, he handed me my paper, and I didn't even see the grade. What I saw was the amount of red that was on the front page. And I was like, oh my. And I started shaking and I turned the next page and it was the exact same if not worse every page it looked like the man had cut an artery while trying to grade my paper I am overwhelmed I am mortified I have no idea what's going on. it's like every sentence on my precious piece of scholastic art he had bled on that thing I don't know how many pins he used but it had to be a few and so finally I thought I'm done no way I'm going to pass this class might as well look at the grade. Now look at the grade. A minus. Now what would a normal human being do when they see an A minus in that situation? Yeah, I made an A. I'm going to pass. I've got an opportunity. Not me. I just went into confusion. I could not in my brain put together the fact that he had literally bled on my paper. I still have the paper. And yet somehow I made an A minus. I thought about it and thought about it. Couldn't rectify what seemed to be incongruent to me. So what I did is I made an appointment with the professor the next week. For a week, I rehearsed my speech on the incongruence 
of him making so many marks on that precious piece of paper and giving me an A. I showed up at the appointment the next week, made my speech. It was awesome. And he looked at me, and I'll never forget the look, because I don't know if it was confusion or sadness. You know that, like the, the, the commercials with the dogs? And they look so sad, and there's that music playing. I think music was playing in the background in this scene. And he just looked so sad like something was wrong with me, which there was. And I'll never forget what he said. Something to the effect of, Mr. McQueen, my job as a teacher is not merely to affirm you. My job is to make you better. The grade is the affirmation of a job well done at this level. All the red is your statement that you can always get better and you can always improve. And as soon as he said it, it was like blinders lifted from my eyes. It's like I couldn't get it till the moment he said that. Because see, everything I did at that season was interpreted through the lens of perfection. I had this lens of performance and it distorted how I interpreted reality. And don't look at me all smug like you have no idea what I'm talking about. I can feel it at the North Campus online. Listen to me, we all do this because we've all been infected by this thing called sin. We don't tend to see uh, reality accurately because the God of this age has blinded our eyes in life. Social scientists actually have a word for this. Social scientists call it cognitive bias. Cognitive bias, according to the book we're reading. By the way, how are you doing on your reading? Yeah, I get it. That's okay. Here's what I challenge you to do. If you're behind, just catch up later. Go to chapter 7 through 9. Read there. Do the homework. This is going to be one of those books you want to read more than once. I've read the book three times now. I'm telling you, it's worthy of your time. In fact, I'll challenge you, a good book is not a good book until you read it more than once. A good book is worth more time. I'd rather you read one book that's good more than once than multiple books. Some of you are thinking, I'm just trying to get through this one, dude. I get it. Get through and all that. But he says in the chapters, cognitive bias refers to a standardized, consistent pattern of deviating from reality in how we see and process things. If you have a cognitive bias, I'm just going to change his wording right there. When you have a cognitive bias, we all have one. You create a subjective reality. That construction of your reality, not actual reality, will dictate how you respond and behave in the world. Listen to me, we all have these biases. Every one of us have them and we all fail to see them. If we saw them, we would get rid of them. Part of the reason it happens is because of a principle neuro um, science calls the principle of first mention. You've probably not heard it, but neuroscientists say that our tendency is the first thing we hear about a subject, whatever it is, we tend to interpret everything we hear on that subject in light of what we hear first. That tends to become the basis of what we believe and what we hold to. And you say, that's awesome. It is awesome if what you heard was true. But if you heard what was false, guess what? It's destructive. So let's say you have a son. And before you can have the talk with your son, you know what I mean by the talk, right? About the beauty of how God created human sexuality and things such as that. Before you can have the talk, which I hope is not just a talk, but multiple talks. Your son is exposed to pornography through one of his friends. If you don't think that's happening, average exposure to pornography right now is between 10 and 11 years of age. It's because of this thing called a phone. You better talk. If your son happens to see that smut first, then everything you say to him about the beauty and wonders of God's creation and human sexuality will be interpreted by him through the porn filter of what he has already seen. 
Now, you're thinking right now, is he stuck? Is, is there nothing he can do about it? No, absolutely. We can actually change what we hold to. We're not stuck in the principle of first, uh, first mention, but we've got to go back and we've got to recognize it, and we have to purposely and proactively undo that thing. Now, I think the Lord created that on purpose because that gives kingdom-centered parents Kingdom-centered leaders and mentors, the ability to give a kingdom worldview to those that they raise up. But none of us were raised with perfect parents, right? Unless you were raised in my house, sorry. None of us, listen, they were raised with perfect mentors. We've all been given distorted lenses through which we interpret reality. And a big part of what God wants to do in our lives when we become his followers is he wants to change our lenses, he wants to change the filter through which we look at everything so that we can interpret things rightly. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You're going to want to look at this text later on. It makes this radical statement. It says, therefore, we do not lose heart. But most often in the scripture, when the heart is referred to, it's not talking about the organ beating in our chest. In the scripture, the heart and the mind are synonymous. So when Paul says these words, we do not lose heart, he is saying in his essence, we have not lost the peace. We have not lost the joy that is in our minds, which is exactly what is happening in our world today, is it not? We're in the middle of this thing called a pandemic. And it has shaken everything. Everywhere I go, every person I talk to around the world has been impacted by this. Life has taken, is taking all sorts of twists and turns. There's so much uncertainty. I mean, we used to think a year and a half to two years ago that life was uncertain. There's all these things that could happen, but kind of deep down we told ourselves, those things aren't going to happen, but then it happened. The movie came true. All this stuff transpired. Now we're looking at the future with so much uncertainty about what's going to transpire in the days to come. So many things to think about and wonder about that it becomes overwhelming. And after a while, people say, it just feels like I'm losing my mind. But Paul says that we, we who follow Jesus, we are not those who lose our minds. We are not those who lose our, our heart. Even if the world seems to be shaking to its core of, of its foundation, we are not of those who lose heart. And some of you are thinking, oh, yeah, but Paul didn't know about pandemics. Paul didn't have social media, which he did not. He did not have 24-hour news cycles. He didn't have podcasts and all these things to deal with. So we can tend to minimize what Paul's saying because the world he lived in, we think, was so much simpler. Later on in 2 Corinthians, Paul, in defending his leadership, just said, five times I received from the Jews the 40 last years minus one. 40 times five is 200. Minus five is 195. The man had 195 marks on his back from being whipped. Three times, he said, I was beaten with rods because I guess the whip wasn't enough. Once I was stoned. That, by the way, had nothing to do with drugs. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. And you can go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 because he just keeps going about the stuff that happened in his life. It's just a sampling of what had transpired in his life as a follower of Jesus. Listen to me. Just like us, the Apostle Paul had lost people to death at way too early an age. 
Just like us, the Apostle Paul had faced unjust situations where justice had not been reckoned in this world. And just like us, as Paul looked to the future, he faced uncertainty. He faced difficulties. He faced problems. And yet, in such a world, the Apostle Paul says, we do not lose heart. We're not losing the peace and our joy in our minds. Which makes you wonder, how, Paul? How do we do it? Well, outwardly, he says, we are wasting away. Yet inwardly, we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our what? Our eyes, we're not talking about these physical eyes, we're talking about the eyes of our minds. The same eyes that were once blinded by the God of this age, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. See, God is telling us that we can be of those people who are not losing our minds. We can be those who walk in peace and joy, but we have to do something. Mental health. Not losing heart, not losing our mind, comes as we change the lenses through which we interpret everything we face in life. And those lenses, listen to me, are summarized in one word. You ready for it? Jesus. Seeing everything through Jesus brings peace of mind. I was preparing the message and I stared at that for the longest of time, thinking, i got to come up with something more creative. Because I know the natural tendency right now is to say, that is such a churchy answer. That is such a tried answer, it's so hyper-spiritual. And some of you right now, you may be online, North Campus, some of you thinking right now, you people think that the answer to everything is Jesus. And then it hit me. Yeah, we do. The scripture says Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, for by him all things. Somebody shout all things. All things were created, things in heaven and on earth, things you can see and things you cannot see, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him. All things were created for him. You see, all of reality, the seen and the unseen, center around Jesus. And if you take Jesus out of the picture, we do not see reality as it was ever intended to be. You can only interpret reality correctly if Jesus is at the center of it all. Hear me, what if the reason we're struggling so much with mental health is because our existence was always designed to be seen through, interpreted through the lens of Jesus? You see, I think most of us tend to do the opposite. We interpret Jesus through the lens of the seen. We watch the news. We read social media, we see all the problems, all the difficulty, all the trials, all the trouble. We know what we're going through in life. And we focus on those things, and then we wonder, where is Jesus? And we interpret the unseen one, Jesus, in light of what we see. And the result? We're losing heart. We're losing our freaking minds. But this does not have to be it's not the way we were designed. See, we can be of those who do not lose heart. And to be those, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. And just in case you're a bit confused by what is unseen, you think I'm over-interpreting that to be Jesus, the Hebrew writer tells us, let us fix our eyes on who? 
Jesus, the author, the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and now he is where? He is at the throne, at the right hand of the throne of the Almighty in life. See, if I may, what God wants to do is like give us a new set of glasses. When I was a kid, uh, I had to wear glasses. My doctor said they would correct at some point. I wouldn't have to wear them, but I had to wear them for a season. I was like first, second grade. And I remember several times my dad would come and he would look, because my dad also wore glasses. And he would look and he'd say, boy, how can you see through those things? And he would take them, and we, we did this dozens of times. He would take me, he would show me how to clean them. And he would make me clean them. So you need to keep your glasses clean so you can see clearly. And I'd put them back on, and I'd go, yeah. I can see clearly, but apparently I wasn't the sharpest knife in the drawer because I just start living the life of a boy and they get smudged, they get dirty and all that. They just became the norm of life. See, some of us think that God just needs to clean things up a little bit. He, don't, he wants to take those glasses off. He wants to smudge them and he wants to give us a new set. If I may, he wants to give us a new set of contact lenses. A few years ago, my wife's optometrist had her try a new set of contact lenses called monovision contacts. I don't know if you ever heard of these. This is amazing to me that there would be two different prescription lenses. One lens in one eye would read things up close, and one lens in the other eye would read things far away. My wife told me about it. I said, That's absurd. What are you going to do? Just keep closing your eyes back and forth all the time? Like I'm reading here, driving here. What, what if you got your phone and you're doing this while you're driving? What's going to happen? She said, No, it's amazing. The brain will adjust. Man, the way God made the brain, it is so malleable. It's so adaptable. Your brain will change even to your latter years of life. Some of us who are a little bit older, we like to give the phrase, you can't teach an old dog new tricks. You know, I don't know about dogs, but we can learn new things. And we can do things differently no matter how old we are because the brain remains malleable. And what happens with these monovision contacts is that the brain learns to use both eyes. And when you're reading something, it uses the lens in one eye, but both eyes work to read. And when you're reading something far away, or seeing something far away, the brain knows both eyes, but it uses the lens for the stuff far away. If I may, Jesus, when we say lenses like, it's kind of like that. We have two facets of the text through which we see our day-to-day -day lives. We interpret everything through this. One lens is the cross and the resurrection. We interpret our past. We interpret our present through that set of lenses. The other lens is his return. The rewards of heaven, we interpret our future through that. That is what Paul says is shouting to us. We don't want to lose our mind. It's like we have these contacts. One's always looking at the cross. One's looking at his return. And we interpret everything through that. And yet there's an enemy who's trying to keep that from happening. Side note, in a little less than two weeks, we're having what we call our Freedom Weekend. You heard about it in our announcements, both campuses. I can't encourage you enough to be part of Freedom Weekend if you've never done it. Because we set aside some time to begin to enact, to make possible. We actually just have experiential time where we say, God, I need a new set of lenses. What's keeping me from getting those new sets of lenses? What's keeping me from seeing things the way God wants to see things? We deal with our past, we deal with our present, we deal with our future and our hopes and things like that. That is key, you need to be part of it. That is key to not losing our minds. Therefore, we do not lose heart. Then he goes with the first lens. Though outwardly we are wasting away. He's talking about our current situation. So Paul is being honest. He's not denying reality. He basically says that our day-to-day -day life is like 
waste. Some of you just thought of another word, probably accurate. So he's saying life is hard, life is difficult. Outwardly, things are like waste, but inwardly, we are being renewed. God is doing a work inside of our hearts. You see, in the midst of a wasting world, we know if we see it through the lens of Jesus that Jesus is working in us and for us, he is renewing us. That's how Paul could say to the church in Rome, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. This isn't saying God makes bad things good. I have done bad things that were just sinful I needed to repent of. I've had bad things done to me and been a victim of that. The abuse that happened to me when I was a kid will never be good, but I can tell you with all, uncertain, with all certainty that God has worked for my good, even in the midst of that reality. Is that not what the cross of Jesus Christ shouts to you and I? We look at the cross, and it says God is good, and he is for us, he is at work in the world, and he is at work in my life to bring about the abundance he wants to bring, the abundance that affects my physical being, it affects my mind, it affects my emotions, it affects my spirits. See, seeing everything through the lens of Jesus changes everything. It brings peace of mind. I mean, think about your life. A few scenarios. Maybe you're already thinking about tomorrow because there's so much going on, and you just think, there's no way I know how to get everything done tomorrow. Or maybe you're living upset right now because you were passed over for a promotion that you knew you deserved. Or maybe you're just living with an overwhelming sense of anxiety because you look at the world and you think, my kids, my grandkids are just inheriting something so chaotic and so evil. And that is reality. But if there's no Jesus in there, then you have missed a big part of the totality of reality. See, if I go into tomorrow and I know I have a lot to do, and I tend to be overwhelmed, but I stop and I remember, if I may, I put on the lenses of Jesus and I remember a reality that I pray a prayer regularly. Father, give me today my daily bread. And the God who gave his son Jesus for me has made the promise that everything I need to live life in that day, he is gonna grant me the grace. God exists outside the bounds of time. He will empower me to live exactly as I need to live in that day. Or maybe I'm upset because I was passed over that promotion. I just know I deserve it, but I stop. And I see Jesus. And I know reality that because of Jesus, I can hear the words of God. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord God Almighty. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future when you seek me with all of your heart. I'm anxious because the world my kids are going to inherit, my grandkids are going to inherit, seems chaotic and out of control. But I stop and I put on the lens of Jesus and I put on the lens of Jesus. I hear the apostle Paul said, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every circumstances, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in want or in need. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And I remember God is going to empower my kids. God is going to empower my grandkids to live exactly as they need to live in the day in which he destined for them to be alive. And when I do that, I see everything through the lens of the cross and the goodness of God. It brings peace to my mind in a present that is wasting away. But it's not just the present. It's also the future. For this life that is light and momentary are achieving for us, working in for what? and eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Listen to me, God isn't finished. 
the work he has begun in you and the work he has begun in the world, he has not finished. God is restoring what was marred by sin. He isn't finished restoring us. He isn't finished restoring this world. He is coming back to finish what he has begun. That's the whole message of Revelation. Then I saw heaven opened up. One day the sky is going to cut. And wherever you are on planet earth, it matters not. The sky is going to open. And behold, a white horse. The one who was seated on it is called faithful and true. On his robe and on his thigh, the boy is tatted. Some of you parents say, don't say that. I'm just telling you, look at the text. He has his name. King of kings and Lord of lords. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. No more mourning. No more, no more crying. No more pain. For the old order of things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne shouted, Behold, I am making all things new. Jesus is coming again. And he is going to finish the restoration he's begun. So I have an eye, if I may, I have a lens that's looking to that, knowing that one day, hopefully a day sooner than I can imagine, I hope I see it with my eyes, he will come. And he will finish that which he has begun. And that fixation on that day. You say, David, you'll be so heavily minded that you are no, of earthly, of no earthly good. That proverb sounds so spiritual, it is such a lie. The only people who do any earthly good are those that are most heavenly minded. Because that is what motivates us. And that fixation gives us peace today. Seeing everything through Jesus, listen to me, one eye on the cross, the empty tomb, one eye on his return, and everything, everything, the food we eat, the job we go to, the kids we raise, the car we drive, the carpet we put in our house, the things we do with our time, everything seen there. All things were created by him. All things were created for him. And when that happens, we are not of those who lose heart. Lots of tools we use to get there. We're going to talk about those next week. We're talking about guarding our minds. We become so passive with our minds. That's next week. You have to come back. But one tool we use is worship. It's why we gather every week. It's why I encourage you, you're, if you're at home, use that great sound system you put in. Turn it up, baby. You control the volume, just crank it. And you enter into worship at home in our north and our south campus. Take full advantage and fix your eyes on him. But before we worship, before we do this, we're going to take 2 Corinthians 4. And we're going to speak words of declaration based on 2 Corinthians 4. It means you have to participate. Online, I want you to do it. North Campus, I want you to do it. See, 2 Corinthians 4.16 says, Therefore we do not lose heart. Because I am in Christ, I am not of those who lose my heart or mind. I will have hope and peace. So I want you to declare it with me. Don't just mouth it. Don't just whisper it. I want you to declare this reality based on the truth of God's word. You ready? Say it with me. Because I am in Christ, I am not of those who lose my heart or mind. I will have hope and peace. 
though outwardly we are wasting away. Inwardly we are being renewed day by day. I will see everything in this life through Jesus. And I know he is working in everything for my good. What would happen if that got inside of you? Let's declare it together. Come on. I will see everything in this life through Jesus. And I know he is working in everything for my good. For our light and momentary troubles. They're achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs anything we can go through. So we fix our eyes. Not on what we can see, but what we cannot see. For what we see is temporary. But what is unseen is eternal. So we declare, I am certain that Jesus is returning and will finish the work of restoration he has begun. Then I will find satisfaction for my soul beyond what I can imagine. Come on, let's declare it together. I am certain that Jesus is returning and will finish the work of restoration he has begun. Then I will find satisfaction for my soul beyond what I can imagine. Come on, both campuses, let's bow our heads for a moment. And let's just let this sink in. Hear it. Do you want to be that man, that woman, who is strong in mind, who carries the mind of Christ? And we got to do something radical and outside the norm. Does it sound churchy? I guess. But I think things that we say in church should sound churchy. What we're doing is not working. Let's do the radical, everything through Jesus. I want you to do this radical thing. I just want you to say right now, Jesus, change my lenses. Jesus, change my lenses. Let me see everything through you. Let me interpret everything through you. Let me remember you. The Bible actually says it doesn't matter whether you eat or drink, do it for the glory of God. We can do all things for the glory of God. Just do it right now. Say, Jesus, we need you. Jesus, we want you to do that. So, Father, I pray over all of us right now. Fix our eyes on you. Fix our eyes on you. We are those who fix our eyes on Jesus, the author, the finisher of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. It staggers us, oh God, that we are your joy. You scorned the shame of the cross, and now you're set down at the place of authority at the right hand of the throne of God. We see it, oh God. We fix our eyes there. For men and women who've not yet given their life to you, I ask they to do it right now today. They just say, yes, Jesus, I am a sinner. I can't save myself. Come into my heart and make me new. Start giving me those new eyes. For those of us who know you, we need to partner with you and we need to fix our gaze. And so we say yes to that partnership. We fix our eyes. We reframe everything and see everything in light of you. Jesus, shape our eyesight. Correct it so that we know that all things, me, everything in this world, everything unseen was created by you, everything was created for you. Let us see the way we're supposed to see. Give us your eyes. I ask in Jesus' name, amen.